The title of my message will make you think we're in the 4th of July or something, but we're not. It's, the title of my message is simply One Nation Under God. One Nation Under God. Doesn't that have a nice ring to it? Wouldn't it be nice if it was true? When you hear that, One Nation Under God. I saw a little cartoon where the little boy went up to the father and, and said, Daddy, is it okay to say One Nation Under God? And the dad looked at his son and that's still to be, to deter, to be determined. And really, that's the truth of the matter. One nation under God. You know, when we take a look at our nation, and we take a look at our, the condition of the church in general, and then you look at the, the life of a lot of people who are, are, say they are Christians, you begin to wonder, what does it really supposed to look like, one nation under God? In our nation, we see materialism and greed everywhere. We see poverty in so many places. The family unit has become what's being destroyed. The whole institution of marriage is being challenged and changed. We see uh, homosexuality, and if you stand opposed to the act of homosexuality, you're a bigot and intolerant. We see idolatry of every kind, selfishness, sexual immorality, adultery, pornography, and the list could go on and on and on. One nation under God. What's the problem? Is the problem a lack of God's presence? Is the problem a lack of his blessing? And if you answer yes to either one of those, the next question would be, well, why or how come? And I don't want us to just look at it as a national level. I want to I bring it to a place where we all live, to our own churches, our own homes, our own lives, to Christians in general, but also to us as Christians Specifically, you know, the Bible says that Jesus came to give life and to give it abundantly. Our mission statement here at Victory Church is to, to help people discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. My question is, if the Bible says that's why Jesus came, is his church in general, are Christians in general, or are we specifically living the abundant life? Well, the reality is, statistics show in people who proclaim to be Christians, pretty much that whole ugly list that I just read off applies to Christians too. There's idolatry, there's homosexuality, the acceptance of homosexuality, there's immorality, the family unit is being destroyed, there's greed and materialism. It reads just like the world. What's happened to the church? What's happening in the lives of Christians? When we look at Christians, so many, so many of us walk in oppression, depression, bound with so many fears and anxieties and worries, wrestling and struggling with all kinds of strongholds in our life, different types of addictions, and the list could go on. So again, the question would be is, is if this is living one nation under God or this is living the abundant life, what's wrong? Is it again the lack of God's presence? I don't know that that could be true because the Bible says in the life of a believer, Jesus will never leave us or nor forsake us, right? So is it a lack of his blessing? And if so, why? And that's a question that I don't even like to talk about. And most of us don't want to hear about it. And most of us don't want to face it. But there's a scripture and there's a phrase. I'm going to just read the phrase to you right now. One nation under God, but 
it might say under that, everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. You know, if we are a nation under God, what that implies is we are a nation that would live under the rule of our Heavenly Father. That the Bible would be our guide of how to live. And yet in our nation, we have come to that place where everyone seems to think they have a right to live according to whatever is right in their own eyes. And if you come against that kind of thinking at all, you're really, really attacked. Again, a bigot, intolerant. Who am I or who are you to tell someone else how they should probably live? We've got this idea that whatever I want to do is okay. You just leave me alone. And the reality is, this is not a new phenomenon. This is not a new phenomenon at all. It's been around for thousands of years. The good news is, the solution has been around for thousands of years. There is a solution to this problem, this whole phenomenon. If you look back in biblical history, the history of Israel, God's chosen people, God's chosen people. You don't have to know a whole lot about the Bible or the Old Testament to know that God's chosen people continually strayed away from Him, strayed away from His statutes, living according to His Word. And before long, they were worshiping idols and bowing down before idols, and they had all kinds of idols in their life. And before long, they didn't hardly give God a second thought. And then God, because He loves them so much and they were His chosen people, would bring discipline upon His children, just like you or I would discipline our children. Not a punishment to, to, to make, them, make them endure the pain, but a discipline. And He would oftentimes use neighboring countries to come and attack, take them into captivity, whatever it took. Because as a loving father, he wanted to draw the people back to himself. And we see this cycle over and over throughout the New Testament. We see in the book of Judges, a book that you may have not even read, looked at much. But after the time of Moses and Joshua, the nation of Israel kind of splintered into its families, its tribes. And the tribes, one tribe would be doing pretty good, the next tribe would be into all kinds of things. Worshipping idols, marrying the pagans, doing all the things that God said not to do. And during that time, God would raise up a judge. And he would raise up a judge that would then lead the people back to God. And he would do this because he loved them so much. Even though there was disciplining, even though he would allow them to suffer the pain and the discomfort and the consequences of their disobedience, he loved them so much that he would discipline them to draw them back to himself. But sometimes it took the people an awfully long time to figure out what God was doing and they would be so slow to respond to his discipline. I mean, the answer was right there. Their forefathers had experienced it. This cycle had kept repeating. The answer was simple. Turn back to God. And you walk in His blessings. Doesn't mean life is perfect, but you walk in His blessings, His presence, His promises to you become yours again. God used in the book of Judges, and we're actually going to look in 1 Samuel this morning, 
But he used a group of people called the Philistines. Now, if you've read a little Old Testament, you know about the Philistines. If you've heard the story of David and Goliath, you've heard of a Philistine. Goliath was a Philistine. And God used the Philistines to draw his people back to himself. The reality was it made life really miserable for his people because the Philistines were the enemies. They would come and conquer, and they had military expertise and, and equipment and weapons that the Jewish... It's like going against a metal sword with a stick. They didn't win when God was not with them. These disobedient, idolatrous people would suffer pain and suffering, and most of it or much of it at the hands of the Philistines. But God would raise up a judge. I'm going to read three scriptures to you, kind of helping to set some background, and then we're going to look at a story in 1 Samuel. The first scripture I want to read is in Judges chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. It says, The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, idols. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. And they bowed themselves down to them, and thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreth. And then in Judges 21, verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. They no longer looked to God as their king. It goes on, it says, There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Whatever. Just do whatever. It doesn't matter. As long as it's okay in my eyes, that's what we're going to do. Don't marry the pagan women. Boy, they're good-looking women. Let's go marry a few of those. Destroy all the temples. No, let's build some other temples for some other gods. Don't worship any god but Yahweh. Well, what, is, what about Baal? What about Ashtorah? What about these other gods that our wives are all worshiping? Let's worship them too. They just totally abandoned God. Totally did what he told them not to do. And the reason he told them not to do it is he knew it would lead to destruction. And he told, knew that if they did what he told them to do, it would bring blessing in their life. Now that would seem like a no-brainer, wouldn't it? Here's a list of things that we tell our children. Don't do these things because bad things will happen to you if you do those things. But if you do those things over here, good things are going to happen to you. Well, we're no different than them. Our kids, what do we do? I knew when my dad made a list, gee whiz, did that pique my interest? And before long, you're doing those things. And you know what? The enemy, Satan, is good. There is temporary satisfaction or temporary joy or fun in a lot of those things. But it all leads to destruction. In 1 Samuel 3.1, as a response or as a result of the way they had turned away from God, it says this, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. Eli was the high priest. And word from the Lord was rare in those days, and visions were infrequent. In other words, God wasn't speaking to the people much. They knew what they were supposed to be doing, but they had chosen to worship idols. They had chosen to enter into sin. They had chosen not to do what God had told them they should do. And even if they cried out to him, he wasn't speaking. Because they already knew what they should be doing. 
They already knew what was right. They already knew what God had done on their behalf as a nation, as a people, in delivering them from Egypt, in parting the Red Sea. They knew all of these things, feeding them for 40 years in the wilderness. They knew all these things. So God was pretty silent. You know, when sin abounds, you may have noticed this in your own life. I know I've certainly noticed it in mine. I don't hear from God so well. I'm not sure all the time whether he's not speaking to me because I already know what I'm supposed to do or that there's just so much sin in my life I'm just not hearing what he's speaking. But a lot of times, no different than here. Here it says God's not speaking and there's very few visions or dreams. And it mentions Samuel. Samuel was a boy and as a young boy he was a, he was a miracle child for his mom and dad. And Hannah, his mother, said, I'm going to give this son to the Lord. And she took him to the temple when he was very young. And he's living in the temple. Now, to give you a little background where these people are at, Eli is the high priest. He's a terrible high priest. He's got two sons that he's letting help in the priesthood. They're horrible sons. They're having sex and, 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 and taking advantage of women at the temple. And Eli, the high priest, isn't, he's saying, you know, really, guys, come on, please, quit doing that. I mean, would you? Maybe? And they just ignored him and kept doing what they were doing, and he didn't do anything about it. The country is in a mess. They've turned away from God. The Philistines, they, the Philistines come and they have a battle. And over 30,000 of the Israelis, 30,000 of the Jewish people are killed. God's trying to get their attention. And then Eli, or then Samuel, hears from the Lord. And Samuel, God is raising up to be a prophet, to be a priest, to be a judge of the people. And God speaks to him and says, you know what, Eli? You're bad news. God says both your sons are going to get killed. And you're going to be toast. And there's a battle and both his sons are killed. The news comes to Eli and now he's gotten really fat because he's eating the food that he wasn't supposed to be eating that was to be sacrificed. And he falls off his chair and breaks his neck and he's dead. Then his daughter-in-law dies in childbirth, giving birth to a child named Ichabod, which means the glory of God has left us. It's a mess because of sin. Then, to make things worse, in the midst of all this, the ark of the covenant had been taken by the Philistines. Now, for those that may not be as familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark was a box, an ornate box that was God had given detailed instructions how to make this box. And they put the, the Ten Commandments were in the box and some other things were put in the box. But it was the symbol of the presence of God. This, this Ark would go before them, representing the God going before them. But they got so used to it, they begin to use it like a magic wand. We lost that battle. Hey, go grab the ark, will you? Let's take it in and kick some rear end here, okay? They took God so lightly, something that he esteemed so highly and something that he'd given such clear instruction on, and they just took it into battle and they got kicked again. And they lost the ark. And it's symbolic. They lost the presence of God. 
And the, the, the Philistines took the ark and thinking, all right. But wherever they took the ark, they had nothing but trouble. God was going to defend himself even if his people weren't going to be obedient. The Philistines took the ark and all of a sudden they start breaking out in tumors and dying like crazy. They said, geez, let's give this to another city. So they take it and give it to another Philistine city. Guess what? It says confusion comes in and people start dying and then tumors start growing and the people start dying and they think, we got to get rid of the ark. This thing's nothing but bad news to us. Let's give it back to the Jews. So they take the ark and they give it back and they take it to a city called Beth Shemesh. So now just think, you would think if you knew anything about their history, and those people would have known about their history, when they got the ark back, it would have been a time of celebration. Worship would have begun. Sacrifices would have taken place. All of this would have happened. They would have been in holy awe of the ark. Not so much. The ark comes back to the city of Bethshemesh, and it says, oh, the people saw the ark, took the ark, and they decided to look in it. Oh, bad idea bad idea. They mishandled the ark completely and it says they looked in the ark and depending on your translation it says 50,070 died for their disobedience. And you say what an evil God. No, what a loving God. He's trying to get their attention. He's trying to draw them back to himself and he'll do whatever it takes. He's not so interested in all the little details that, that we might think are hindrances. He's interested in our hearts. He wants our hearts because he knows it'll be a blessing in our life. Those people decided, we don't want the ark either. So they took it to another city, another Jewish city, in this city called Kiraath-Jeurim or something like that. And here they had some good sense. It says they took it to a house up on a hill and they got a young man and they consecrated him to watch over the ark. Samuel was now the, the, the judge. He was the one hearing from God, speaking to the people. And that brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 7. And I'm going to go ahead and read the first 13 verses. As the men of Kiriath-Jearim came and took the ark of the Lord, they brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came about from the day that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jearim that the time was long, for it was twenty years. And all of the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, Gather all of Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And they gathered to Mizpah, and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted on that day and, that, and said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. 
Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. In other words, we're going to attack. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb, and he offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far, far, as, far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. So there was peace between Israel and the Amorites." The people had finally said, enough is enough. You know what? As Christians, we need to get to the place where we are ready to say, enough is enough. I'm not going to take this anymore. And what I just read is a, a success for each one of us to press into. And it's there for all to notice. We're going to go back now and look at verse 2. It says, all the house of Israel lamented for the Lord. We don't use that word lamented a lot anymore, but what does it mean? It's mourning after, it's crying out to, it's groaning, it has a meaning of submitting. It's saying the people had had enough. They finally had reached the end of their rope and said, we need the Lord. We need the Lord. Half the problem in our culture is we don't realize we need the Lord. We have got so many things and so many answers to so many of life's problems. We don't need the Lord. Eventually, we get to that place in the middle of a trial or a test or a crisis, and we finally call out to God. He's saying, why don't you call out to me sooner? You know, we experienced all these things we shared about last week when we were down in Columbia, all these miraculous healings, all these signs and wonders. And, and I'm asking myself, and people are asking, why doesn't it happen here? We don't cry out to God. We don't need God much. He's like an insurance policy. How many of you know exactly where your life insurance is in your house? Well, when you need it, you go find it. That's how we treat God. Where is he? I don't know. Will you pray for me? I can't seem to find him. He doesn't go anywhere. He's always waiting. And he's ready. Because no matter what we're going through, it's a manifestation of his love for us to draw us back to himself. All the house of Israel lamented. I hope you caught this. It said, it came back, the ark came back, and 20 years passed before they cried out and said, enough is enough. The presence of God, the, the symbol of the presence of God is back. They don't start worshiping there. They don't start sacrificing there. Oh, good. God's back. 
20 years they suffered under the hands of the Philistines. Pain, anguish. Ah, oh, it's so often. It's the life of a Christian. We accept God. We accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. And it goes no further than that. And we live miserably for 10, 20, 30 years. Just hoping my ticket's been punched. I'm going to get into heaven. God says, I, I did this. Jesus died for way more than your ticket to be punched to get into heaven. He died to set you free here on this earth. He decided to deliver you from all of these strongholds and bondages in your life. We don't have to continue to live in bondage. But like these people, oh, God's here somewhere. We'll be okay, maybe. I sure wish I could get through this. They realized enough was enough. They had to turn to the Lord. How about us? Do we get to that place? That's where we should live at, where we turn to the Lord with everything. Whatever your battle is, you don't have enough. You might get through that one, but the next one's going to come right away because God wants his children at a place where he is all we look to. He will use many different things, many different people, many other things he's blessed us with in our culture, but it's him that we need to turn to. They cried out to him. What did they cry out to him for? His presence. His manifest presence. They didn't just cry out to him because they were tired of feeling sick and tired. They didn't cry out to him just because they were in a bad situation. They cried out for him because they finally got to that place that said, God, we need you. That's what we need. In verse 3, it goes on and says, the prophet Samuel, the judge Samuel, the priest Samuel of God speaks. And he starts out by saying, if you will return to the Lord. There's the qualifier. If you will return to the Lord. No half-heartedness. If you return with your whole heart to the Lord. Okay. Amen. Your whole heart. Not half-hearted. You know, even when we turn to God, it's sort of conditional. I think I'll give it a try and see if it helps. Well, that didn't work. Wholeheartedly, with repentance, turning to the Lord. And verse 3 continues, Remove the foreign gods and Ashtarah from among you. You know what? When there is real repentance, it needs to be demonstrated in our actions. Real repentance. They didn't just say, God, forgive us for worshiping Baal. He said, we got to go destroy those idols. You know, God doesn't want to just take your idol and put it in a closet somewhere. He wants to destroy the thing. He wants to blow it up. And he will. He will if that's what it takes to get our attention. Remove the foreign gods. A change in lifestyle. When there is true repentance, there should be a change in lifestyle. It's not 100% in one moment necessarily. I understand that. It's a process. But if people can't see our lifestyle changing, it's pretty hard to say there's been true repentance in our life. Have we done what he requires that we can receive his promises? God's not going to share his worship with any idol. 
And our idols are much more subtle than something made of gold or wood. Our idols can be money, success, material goods, other people, you name it. Our addiction can be our idol. God doesn't want to just be worshipped alongside your other gods. He wants to be your God. Period. And in verse 3, he says, direct your heart to the Lord. So when you look at that verse, Samuel speaks and he says, if you return to the Lord with your whole heart, remove the foreign gods, in other words, respond, and then direct your heart to the Lord. Fix your heart on the Lord. It's the opposite of wavering. It's the opposite of, of being wishy-washy. It's an opposite of this vacillating state of mind. One day yes, the next day no. He says, fix your heart on the Lord. God is saying you need to make a deliberate decision to put all the other diversions away and focus on Him. And then he finishes verse 3 by saying, and serve Him alone. Serve Him alone. Our attitude towards serving is all messed up. It is an honor and a privilege to serve God. You know why God asks us to serve Him? To bless us. I mean, God created everything with a word. You think He needs you and me to do anything for Him? He doesn't need us to do anything. Nothing. But He's chose to allow us to be part of His work here on earth and part of the work in building His kingdom. It is an amazing privilege, amazing honor to serve God in whatever it is you're doing, whatever you're called to. I mean, if you're a farmer, serve God in your farming. If you're a homemaker and you, and you just serve God in your homemaking, if you're a stay-at-home mom, serve God as you raise your children. If you're a businessman, it doesn't matter what, serve God. All to His glory, all to His honor. That's what He's saying, serve God. And when you serve Him alone, it becomes such a wonderful privilege instead of this heavy burden that the world will try to tell you it is. And then verses 4 through 6. We see the people respond. They removed and destroyed the idols, and they served the Lord alone. And then they gathered together and prayed and fasted. They were serious. And notice they declare in, in verse 6, we have sinned against the Lord. You know, whatever our sin is, and whoever it's against directly, it's against God. The people responded and prayed. But I don't want to leave it there. Because verse 9 gives us some interesting insight. Notice what happened. And this happens in our lives also. We reach that place where we've said enough is enough. We focus on God. We get our attentions to God. We repent. We get in a place where we're, we're, we're in a good place spiritually and then all hell breaks loose, literally. Satan attacks. He comes against us with everything he's got. And if we're not aware that this is going to happen, it sometimes overwhelms us. And sometimes we say, what, where, how, what God? And we slide back. Our faith weakens and we slide back into fear. Notice what happens here. As soon as the Philistines hear that the people are gathering in Mitzpah and they're praying and fasting, I wonder how they heard. It doesn't tell us. I wonder how they heard. 
You know, it seems like sometimes I make a decision in my life and I repent of something and I don't tell anybody and yet the devil seems to know I don't understand that. And he comes at me just to knock me off track completely. How did they know? I don't know. It doesn't say. All it says is they heard and they said, "Uh uh-oh, they're gathering against us. We got to go get them. And notice what the people did. What happened immediately? It says, They became afraid of the Philistines. Satan is a liar and a deceiver. He wants to mess with our mind. He wants to create fear because fear and faith do not coexist. When fear starts to creep in, faith is starting to ease out. And that's his goal. And right here, the people people hear the Philistines are coming. And right away, what do they do? They turn to Samuel and say, don't quit praying. Don't quit praying. We need to expect the attack of the enemy. He will not give up. He's defeated, but he won't quit. The enemy's attacks will come. And they kept praying. And then notice when you get into verses 10 and 11, who gets the victory? But also notice who has to do some work. It says the Philistines came and God came to their defense. He says it thundered. Thunder from heaven came and brought fear and confusion into the camp of the enemy. And then notice what it says. Israel, the people, had to go and battle the enemy and destroy the enemy. You know what? God has already completely given us the victory over Satan, over sin and death. He has given us the victory. But he says, get off your duff and go claim it. Stand by faith. Do what the word tells us to do. If you were just going to sit there, the enemy is just going to back off and come at you harder and harder. And we see a picture here. It says they got up and they chased him and they were destroying him the whole way. And it says they, then look what happens. It's really, I think it's really a neat picture for us. And I don't think I'm taking it too far. It says they not only destroyed him and the enemy couldn't come back and attack their lands anymore. But it says God restored the cities that the Philistines had taken. I believe our God loves us so much. When we turn to him. When we come to Him, when we repent, when we focus on Him, He will restore to us what the enemy has stolen. But if we don't, it's gone. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Amen? Would you agree with that? Same God. I think there's such a picture for us here. Wherever we're at in our personal life, as a nation, as the church, there is hope. There is an answer. There is a solution. Get serious. Get desperate and turn to God. Turn with your whole heart to God. Repentance has to be a critical part of this. Jesus died for our sins. We need to repent that they would receive that forgiveness. We have idols in our lives, all of us, that need to be dealt with. Ask God what they are. He'll show you. 
Or ask your wife or ask your husband, they'll tell you. Ask somebody you know really well, they'll tell you. We've got them. Anything that takes the place of God in our life is an idol. We need to repent and remove those idols. And when I say that, you may have some, you know what, your wife, your husband, your children could be an idol in your life. Getting rid of that idol doesn't mean you get rid of your wife or your husband or your children. <laughs> what it means is you get it in proper, proper priority. There are other things that may be idols in your life. God may ask you to lay it down and never touch it again. Or he may just say, lay it down for a season, get your priorities in place, and go ahead and pick it up. I gave that to you for you to enjoy, but not to be an idol. So whatever it is, we need to get it in its proper place. And then don't waver. The world will try to convince you to waver. The enemy will try to convince you to waver. We need to fix our heart on God. And then serve Him wherever you're at. You know, you don't have to travel anywhere to serve God. You don't have to change jobs to serve God. Serve Him wherever you're at. Let's close in prayer. God, I thank you for the picture we see here and for the clear clarity that you reveal to us of the solution in our own lives, the life of the church, the life of this nation. God, that there is hope and that hope is you. That you are the only solution to the effects of sin in our life, in your church, and in our nation. So God, I pray and ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, reveal to us those things in our life. They're competing for our affections with you. Grant us repentance that we might be quick to forgive, that we might be set free. God, there are so many things in our life to distract, to lead us into different directions. We have an enemy, Satan, who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Lord, I pray that you will draw us to yourself by your Spirit. Father, I'm so thankful that you don't give up on us, that you are patient and long-suffering. Father, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that the enemy couldn't use anything that I've shared this morning, but it would all bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen.